After the princes had brutally put down the peasant revolt of 1525, Luther was subjected to increasing pressure to explain his position of support for the princes. In his book, Against the Murderous Hordes, Luther made some memorable comments that encouraged the killing of the peasantry. How could Luther possibly defend himself? Several months after the end of the revolt, Luther answered his critics. Although his answer won't satisfy everyone, it is important and necessary clarification to his previous writing. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gettner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over nice cold beer. So, you know, I went back and forth on this particular episode. I, I picked the episodes, I picked the subjects. Because we've had about 20 episodes now in the Peasants' Revolt. <laughs> it seems like it. And Maybe I, not that many. I was so tired of the Peasants' Revolt. But, I, you know, I, and I actually I captured it in the opening there. I, I felt like, you know... Luther needed a chance to explain himself. We, we, when we were talking about Luther, we, we did highlight a lot of the very nasty things that he said. And I thought, well, we should probably give him a chance to say, to, get, to have his own words interpreted like it was back in 1525 when he wrote this. So this episode is an attempt to kind of look at the after-action report of the Peasants' Revolt, how different people have used Luther um, to explain or to justify or to attack uh, the reaction of the nobles to the Peasants' Revolt. The Peasants' War of 1525 was unbelievably brutal. So, to put down the rebellion, the princes killed, uh, really, uh, unbelievable is the right word, uh, an unbelievable number of people. So, the total number of dead, about one out of every 80 people in Germany. This included a lot of people who really didn't have anything to do with the rebellion. A lot of women and children died during that, were killed by the mercenaries there. Well, because the princes didn't do all the killing themselves directly. They hired mercenaries, professional soldiers, who did the tasks that were assigned to them. So, yeah, and as these mercenaries are engaging in their bloodlust, and that's really what it was. It was, it was yeah. just bloodlust. They were just enjoying killing. Um, there were reports that they would quote Luther from the book uh, against the robbing and murderous hordes of the peasants. And some of those quotes were pretty stunning, so if you take these quotes out of their context or the frame of kind of the invective, violent character of some of Luther's attacks that then sometimes are more philosophical than direct. Yeah, yeah. You so, get these quotes. A prince can win heaven with bloodshed better than other men with prayer. Uh, or it is plain that these peasants have deserved death many times over. And then finally, anyone who is killed fighting on the side of the rulers may be a true martyr. Now, like Evan said, you know, the, these guys who are killing, um, they're, they're taking them out of context. We did spend some time trying to put some context around them uh, in, our, in, our, in a previous episode, but uh, really, you know, the, this is what Luther wrote. You know? So these words became banners for violence. And Luther, well, where do, what's the source of these kind of words that seem to have such violence behind them is some terror. A terror that the peasants would win, ushering in an era where only might makes right. So it's it's ironic that his fear was that if the peasants revolted and succeeded by power and violence, it would be a demonstration that might makes right. Then the nobles, using his words, hire mercenaries, and with incredible power and violence, 
make their position right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so you know, you know, what Luther was probably most concerned about was scripture, and you know, he was worried that if the peasants won, just as the the the, the nobles of his era had influence in the interpretation of scripture, if they disagreed. If your noble didn't like the way you read scripture, they had the quote unquote air quotes here right to kill you. You know, they could call you a heretic and with the with the blessing of the pope, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but Luther was very aware of the interplay between politics and the reading of scripture. And he, although he he worked very hard to uh, you know, he believed that that would that would end he, you know, but that was a, certainly a reality of his day. And he knew Thomas Munzer was twisting scripture to support his own radical reordering of society. Yeah, so so he was he was worried that Thomas Munzer's reading of scripture, just as the Catholic Church, um, uh, the the medieval Catholic Church, the scholastic reading of scripture, really ran Europe for hundreds of years. He was worried that the the Thomas Munzer reading of scripture would run Europe. For hundreds of years before, and the gospel would be temporarily, uh, uh, not maybe not extinguished, but, but hidden. But hidden. And so Luther's uh, typically harsh language, which had served him well against the Pope, it kind of backfires in these writings on the Peasants' War. His friends reminded him of his power through his writings to influence and change minds, and. They recognized the danger of the writings that he had even before he released against the murderous hordes. So they pleaded with him to to lighten the language up, soften things up. And even just the title. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he refused. He absolutely refused. And so it has tarnished Luther's legacy because, well, we need to kind of calibrate our mind to what it means that 100,000 people were killed by princes and mercenaries during the Peasants' War. So if you consider the population of Germany at the time, there were about 8 million people, roughly, and it's hard to know exactly the number, but it was roughly about 8 million people. So the percentage of the population was, uh, it was a little bit, it was about point, I believe it was 0.01% or point, uh, 0.125%. So the equivalent in the U.S. today, if you, you took the population of the U.S. and you killed that same proportion of people. It'd be about 4 million people. So the Peasants' War... Uh, we have had a number of episodes on it, but it was a significant event in the understanding of Lutheranism, uh, the reaction of uh, how you consider theology and politics together. Yeah, and you know, it it, it changed. It it really did tarnish Luther's stature in in medieval Europe. The, his his position on the Peasants' War. Uh, it may have prevented how Lutheranism advanced to other parts of maybe France or down to Italy or into the Netherlands or to other places because they're like, do we want a peasant's war here? No, we don't. And and do we want, or, or on the other side, do we, you know, do we support the, the wholesale killing of women and children and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, 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 and putting down a rebellion? No, not really. So, so after the rebellion, pretty uh, much everybody, they're asking Luther to explain his support of the princess. So the peasants thought that, if we go back a few episodes, the peasants thought Luther was supporting them when he wrote his admonition to peace. So they really felt betrayed 
uh, when he when he picked up the pen and started writing against them. Because in the admission to peace, he had criticized the nobles for their tyrannical rule, and and kind of described that the the space for peace was going to come from uh, the turn of the nobles, and so the peasants saw that there was a a unified voice here from Luther. They thought, yeah. Yeah, and and then so the the peasants sort of turned against Luther based on the this specific writing. Uh, the Catholics said Luther betrayed his interpretation of the gospel when he said a prince could earn heaven by putting down a rebellion. It's basically saying a work. Yeah. Now Luther is just being hyperbolic with his phrasing there, but they catch it and they grab on it and and they say, "See, you say people can be saved by their works even more than prayer." So. Where is saved by grace in this? Yeah, well, yeah, and and even Luther's friends uh, questioned him on this one. And they, they now might... they understood the hyperbolic, and they understood kind of the timeline of concern about the peasants and concern about the nobles, and and Luther trying to speak words of critique to both sides. So his friends wondered not about the theology, but more just the harshness. Why did? Luther insists on being so harsh in driving down revolt. So they noted that Luther, Luther's protector, Frederick the Wise, had died just a day or two uh, before Luther released his book. And they so there maybe is this apocalyptic concern. His ruler has died. Uh, there is a moment of chaos that's about to erupt. We need to put this down. Could and, be that. And, and or 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 another thing that they were wondering is is you know does he recognize his own vulnerability uh, with the princes mm-hmm. now that his prince has died his protector has died does he need the support of the princes against the pope and so he's looking they're looking at it and saying was this a political maneuver and you know this is that that is a, that's one of the things that they were wondering was this a political maneuver to make sure that. Hey, you still got a you still got a roof over your head. So by reminding the nobles of the power they have to put down the murderous hordes of the peasants, uh, he is giving himself uh, a position of uh, friendship to the nobles right when his benefactor dies. Yeah, could be that. Yeah. So these are, these are all questions that were uh, floating around right uh, right after the war, right after all the killings, when when everything became public. Uh, about Luther's role in all of this, and and so and there's questions that that continue to this day actually. Um, so you know Luther's friends begged him to put out a retraction. Just you know let's put this thing behind us, and and just just retract it. It was a disaster that you put that out. So the against the murderous swords gave permission to the nobles uh, to put down the revolt in a very violent and uh, destructive way. And he doesn't respond right away. No, no. He waits a couple of months, and in the Pentecost sermons of 1525, he first explains his position. And then in July of 1525, Luther releases a more definitive answer in a book titled An Open Letter on the Harsh Book. It's interesting that he didn't actually put the title of the book. He calls it The Harsh Book. The Harsh Book, instead of, you know, so even there he's... And when I saw that, I think you know it sounds to me like he's, he's a little bit of softening, a little bit of softening, a little bit of distance. Um, but that's just you know certainly reading way between the lines. Well, so Mike, 
we have kind of drawn a very tight line between Luther's writing of the book against the murderous hordes and then the the mid-May Peasants' War and destruction of Thomas Munzer and the violent destruction of 100,000 people. There's uh, kind of this very sequential, he writes this book, the nobles go out in war and kill 100,000 people. See, it's Luther's fault. Does that work? No. No. Well... So modern scholars, there's a lot of modern scholars that I ran across who disagree with that timeline. And and they say, you know, you really have to look closely at the timeline of the revolt. Um, Thomas Munzer uh, lost the Battle of Frickenhausen uh, on May 15th. Um, he was the last of the leaders of, uh, uh, of the revolt. So he loses the battle May 15th. May 15th, right. And after his death on May 27th, the war pretty much is over. There is uh, a mopping up operation, which any of the people died in that would probably disagree that they're just uh, an experience of mopping up. I'm sure it was sad, but things are winding down. Right, right. And and But Luther released his book middle of May. Uh, it was right about that same time. It so was, all those mercenaries, all those nobles and princes, to position their forces to put down the peasants' war, they're already in place. Most likely already in place. It is certainly possible that Luther's book found its way into their hands, but it cert- most certainly missed the majority of the killings. Yeah, so, so this idea that uh, his writing of this book has become a... Mer- uh, murderous banner of violence that w- people are carrying into the battle. That they're they're campaigning with his slogans as they kill these people. It, it doesn't quite work with the timeline. Right. Uh, his book being released middle of May. The the final defi- definitive battle of the war is fifteen May fifteen, which is about contemporary when his book is supposed to be released. So it's not quite fair to say his book inspires this violence. And so we can completely blame Luther for the peasants' war. No, no, uh, you know he he the the the, the yeah his. But he did write what he did. Write. He he did write it, and it could have found its way into a couple of mercenaries, some mercenaries' hands. But the timing's likely, just too tight. Yeah, the timing's way too tight. Uh, so now um, part of this is we've been calling it the peasants' war, and I don't know about you, but in my mind, I think of peasants. I think of essentially the the poor nameless anonymous farmer yeah yeah you know <laughs> like in monty python you know bring out your dead that guy the, i'm the, not dead yet <laughs> the guys who are you just, will be you know, in three days they're, they're, they're just barely I'm not dead yet. they're just barely making it they're it's completely like, anonymous they're forgotten people but yeah yeah now robert kolb uh who has written quite a bit about the reformation if you start to do any sort of research on the Reformation, include him in your bibliography. He wrote an article on Luther and the Peasants' Revolt of 1525 in the Lutheran Quarterly, published in 2009. And so he he points out, first of all, we need to recalibrate our definition of a peasant. We tend to think of a peasant as being a synonym to the poor underclass, but this isn't how Luther uses the term peasant. So there's a German peasantry. Uh, It does include the very poor day laborer, the impoverished urban artisan, but it's also including the relatively prosperous land-holding farmers and artisans and and growing merchant class that does not include a title of nobility. 
you know, and it's interesting that the areas uh, with the poorest peasants in the like in the northeast of Germany, uh, there was very little armed revolt. Uh, it, it was, you know, it really was in the the we'll say the more financially the well industrious off. Yeah. corridors. Yeah. And, you know, Kolb spends some time reviewing Luther's comments on the peasants in his table talks. Which that I way we can a, know when he says peasants, what does he mean versus what we think he means when he says peasants. Yeah, and, and so in, in his table talks, Luther spends time, when he references the peasants, he bundles them in with the bankers, complaining that they're arrogant and greedy and that they oppress the poverty-stricken. So, Obviously, these aren't... They're not synonyms. Poverty and peasant no, for Luther. No, no, uh, He's uh, Another point Luther makes at Table Talk is that the peasant problems are mostly due to a lack of poss- proper discipline from the nobility. So it's not that he's inviting and encouraging more discipline from the nobility, but actually his critique of the, the peasants is rooted in the fact that in the past the nobles have been tyrannical and capricious and arbitrary in the way that they have exercised discipline. Regular, consistent, uh, reliable order in society would less likely have developed into a peasant's revolt then. Yeah, yeah. And then the last point that Luther, that Kolb made uh, that I picked up on, I mean, you could we could have almost a whole episode on that, right. on that single paper, but um, was that he points out that the pe- the, Luther's writings on the peasant's revolt were manipulated first by the Catholics, then by the Communists, and finally, and also by the writers of the Enlightenment. And so historians of the Enlightenment, and also those contemporaries in the Enlightenment, um, very much are, are wondering what this two kingdoms idea is about that Luther is introducing at the same time period when you've got Erasmus and others that are offering this kind of noble utopian society where there is religion and and, uh, civic society so intertwined. In Luther's mind, religion and civic society um, certainly are connected, but not intertwined in the way that others are kind of mapping a trajectory of at this time right, period. Right, There's uh, Luther sees, uh, uh, like uh, Evan mentioned, there's a definite line between the, 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 the kingdom of the sword, the kingdom of the spirit. Over and over again, Luther is drawing a line between those two and, and not, he doesn't go to that utopian ideal of this, you know, which was what the, you know, of, of the church and state being intertwined together. It's, and that's something that uh, later on people start to kind of wonder about also in Switzerland uh, with and John Calvin and that wonder of what a, a perfect society and the relationship of religion into that society. Or in America, we could look to the Puritans yeah, and we could then look, say, to modern politics and the moral majority and the evangelical movements of the late 20th century to say, this challenge of what it means to have a kingdom of the spirit that's uh, functioned by grace and a kingdom of the sword that's functioned by the law. How do these communicate? It's yeah. still confusing to people. It, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, well, it's it, even for those who study it in actual usage, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and in yeah. actual usage, we have a peasants' war that a hundred thousand people die. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So. Now let's look at what are Luther's actual concerns um, that, for him, speak to why he had to say what he said about the murderous hordes, or otherwise later known as that harsh book. So Kolb points out the first of the four is a concern for order. 
Uh, and we've talked about that quite a bit over the course of the last couple yeah. of episodes. For Luther, the main function of civic society is order. Yeah, yeah. The second one is a concern for the proclamation of the gospel. And we talked about that just a few minutes ago. Uh, if if Munzer had won, then the proclamation of the gospel could have been uh, corrupted uh, to many, many people to be this sort of apocalyptic, might makes right, God, God is on our side type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then the third... Keeping the two kingdoms separate. When we say of two kingdoms, we're talking about the kingdom of the spirit or kingdom of grace. And the kingdom of the sword. And the kingdom of power. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, Luther was very concerned that if the peasants used violence to address the injustices of the nobility, it would end in horrible bloodshed. So this is him explaining why he is defending his book, uh, that harsh book against the murderous hordes, uh, that when he wrote it, he was concerned that the peasants and their violence would result in bloodshed. Uh, and he obviously had more more confidence that, uh, and turned out to be misplaced confidence, but more confidence that the, that the nobility would constrain themselves appropriately. Yeah. As, you know, and this might be the arrogance of the time period, that the nobles in their upper class are not just upper class by wealth, but in their dignity and integrity. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, you get into the, the backroom deals and you suddenly realize integrity is only the face for whatever you want it to be right right yeah well it's time for a beer break and and this is a unique uh beginning moment for us the beer for this beer break has been provided by a listener so uh want to say thanks to kurt kirk uh seifker seifker yeah. seifker sorry about that kirk seifker uh, he has provided boss tweed from old nation brewing company now we we've we've featured Old Nation uh, just recently. I think it was was it the last? Yeah, episode? we had the M forty three featured that in the was, past. So this is this is a sister beer of the M forty three. Maybe an older sister, a more mature <laughs> sister, a more it, complicated sister. Uh, it's a more complicated sister. I'll tell you, th- this is a uh, this is a really good beer. It's know? a good beer. <laughs> um, a, it, it's it's got some thickness to it. It reminds me of orange juice with pulp. Uh, not very, in the flavor, yeah. but in the thickness. Yeah, that's what the color is, at least in this lighting. Yeah, um, it, it almost looks like an orange juice sort of thing, and, and about as about as thick. I mean, it's yeah. the the uh, the the particulates that uh, it's got very very hazy. Um, and this was uh, produced in the spring and still good, and uh, just um, released on social media today. Old Nation Brewing Company is again. Uh, brewing an, another batch of old, oh, are they? Because uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I was looking up. There, there wasn't a whole lot online about this one at the at the Old Nation website. I went and checked it out. There was effectively a blank page, uh, but I did some research uh, on some of the, the the blogs and stuff. And I'll tell you, a lot of people like this even better than the M forty three. This is uh, it's it's a, a more mild beer. Um, it, I think the the tang or the the tartness of M forty three is a little muted. In it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it, it goes down real smooth. It's a great summertime beer. At mm-hmm. least I, I think so. It's very very easy to drink. I I, I really enjoy this one. It's yeah. <laughs> so and now so cheers, prost. And uh, there are over five hundred breweries in Michigan. Uh, so we'll keep trying to discover new breweries, uh, but this is a, a, a good beer as well. Yeah, sometimes when when a brewery puts out so many good beers, we we've we've uh, we, I think we've 
we've had uh, I believe uh, Shorts a couple of times. We've had a couple of breweries we, we've we've featured uh, two or three times. Old Nation has has met that criteria. It has met that criteria worth a double look. Yeah. So thanks to Kirk for the beer. Thank you, Kirk. So now we're going to look in some detail at this open letter on the Harsh Book. Uh, It is written as a letter to Caspar Mueller, who was the Chancellor to the Counts of Mansfield and a frequent correspondent with Luther. Now, Luther, in the very, very beginning of the the letter, he says he wants to head plan to just keep quiet, but since... The Chancellor had asked for guidance, and answering Luther's critics, Luther said he would offer some guidance. So, so this is this is Luther uh, uh, basically advising somebody on how to defend the harsh book. So, one way I was thinking of this is if you've got um, uh, uh, Luther preparing his uh, vocal supporters to go on the Sunday morning talk shows. These are the things, their talking points, uh, to kind of defend him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so his first concern, as we were mentioning from Kolb, is societal order. Uh, here's a quote from Luther. A rebel is not worth rational arguments, for he does not accept them. You have to answer people like that with a fist until the sweat drips off their noses. The peasants would not listen. They would not let anyone tell them anything. So their ears must now be unbuttoned with musket balls till their heads jump off their shoulders. Not really milder language. Maybe not something you'd expect from a pastor uh, who (laughs) says, you know, love thy neighbor. Um, But we will notice that Luther makes a strong distinction between... um, a generic criminal and a rebel. Because yeah. he sees that a rebel has the ability to overthrow the very primary character of society, and that is order. And then Luther launches into a very long uh, discussion when mercy is not appropriate. And I think this is kind of a key thing for Christians in trying to understand uh, what does it mean to be a Christian and be in a place where the law has a function. Uh, for instance, when is mercy not appropriate? If a Christian who happens to be a cop pulls over someone uh, speeding, running through red lights, and gets pulled over, and it's a DUI. Uh, mercy is not appropriate right there. For the safety of other people on the road, it would be of no benefit and care for our neighbor if that Christian police officer pulls over that guy and says, I see you're sorry. I, I forgive you. Go on your way now and sin no more. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that is entirely appropriate for uh, that man to have that conversation with this pastor uh, later when he's in uh, private <laughs> confession. But on the side of the road, that cop has a duty not to show mercy. That's right, and, and even in business. I mean, as a manager, you know, there are times if you have somebody coming into work and they're they're not doing their job right. They're they're just being a burden to everybody else. It's up to that manager to. You can't just say you know. Bless you, son. Go on your way. <laughs> it's, it's up to that manager to, to say, you know, to, to bring the law down. You know? And this can be hard for a church where a pastor has some administrative responsibilities for staff. Uh, and maybe that uh, staff member will have done something wrong or hasn't shown up to work on time or is, uh, keeps uh, finding reasons not to be at work. Uh, 
And that pastor who, besides the duties to proclaim the gospel, also has some administrative responsibilities, will have to say, I'm sorry, you're no longer employed here. And they may say, but you're a pastor. Don't you love me and care for me? I'll say, absolutely. But your function here in employment? No. Yeah. Can't happen anymore. Yeah. And this is hard. So his concerns to a rebel are harsh. And then that word about mercy not being appropriate. Well, let's finally, after all that introduction... Let's hear the quote. So the quote is, uh, here, uh, this is Luther speaking, Here I do not want to hear about, hear or know about mercy, but to be concerned only about what God's word requires. If you want to have mercy, then do not consort with rebels, but respect authority and do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, Paul says, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So here he's starting to uh, use the language from Romans 13, uh, where that sword is used... um, in the exercise of godly authority. The the next, uh, the, you know, Luther then spends some time, and Kolb also pointed this out, Luther spends some time uh, discussing the two kingdoms. And, you know, this is this is actually, I thought, I, I don't know, I thought it was helpful mm-hmm. uh, in, in understanding Luther's ideas on two kingdoms. You know? So the scripture passages which speak of mercy applied to the kingdom of God and to Christians. So this is Luther speaking right yeah. now. Okay. And then he says, these passages, not to the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world, which is nothing else than the servant of God's wrath upon the wicked, should not be merciful, but strict, severe, and wrathful in fulfilling its work and duty. Luther then continues, Although the severity and wrath of the world's kingdom seems unmerciful, nevertheless, when we see it rightly, it is not the least of God's mercies. Suppose I had a wife and children, a house, servants, and property, and a thief or murderer fell upon me, killed me in my own house, ravaged my wife and children, took all that I had, and went unpunished so that he could do the same thing again when he wished. How can this mercy be shown to me and my poor, miserable wife and children, except by restraining such a scoundrel? What a fine mercy to me it would be to have the, have mercy on the thief and murderer, and let him kill, abuse, and rob me. So this speaks to that character of the state to constrain evil, and that it is a benefit to others when the state functions properly and constrains evil, because then that means we live in peace. Yeah, yeah. I I, I know people from all over the world. You know, I, I do a lot of traveling, and one of the one of the comments that I've heard, um, in certainly not in Europe, but in, uh, in some of the, the poorer areas is there, they really are impressed that uh, America is a land of the law. You know, where, you know, where, when, when somebody makes a law that there's some predictability, there's some predictability in it. And, And it's very challenging for them to live in a culture where, where, you know, you can bribe people and, and, work around the law if you have enough money, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, <laughs> I don't have the heart to tell them that happens sometimes here, but you know, it, it's, it, we are f- much further along that path than, than a lot of these, these poorer countries. Now, in other writings of Luther about the Peasants' War, we have looked at the struggle of, of Luther's idealism, of his expectation that the state of the state, when it functions to preserve order, does so properly. And, you know, today it's very much a a conversation about when the state fails, what is the role of the people to bring about reform? 
That's not spoken of right here. Right. No, no, that's not. This is this is when order is established and and agreed upon, we'll say, I guess, or when, when the authorities are not abusing their power. This doesn't really speak to when authority is, is being abused. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, um, you know, but, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was, uh, I was trying to, uh, I was really trying to get a better idea of the two kingdoms. And I really probably should have spent some time in, uh, in Luther's open letter on the harsh book. That, that This is, uh, I thought, helpful to me uh, in, in, in what he was trying to get at with mm-hmm. all that. And I'm going to go with one more, one more quote from Luther, um, where he says, the scriptures therefore have good, clear eyes and see the temporal sword aright. They see that out of great mercy, it must be unmerciful and from utter kindness, it must exercise wrath and severity. The merciless punishment of the wicked is not being carried out just to punish the wicked and make them atone for the evil desires that are in their blood, but to protect the righteous and to maintain peace and safety. And beyond all doubt, these are precious works of mercy, love, and kindness, since there is nothing on earth earth that is worse than disturbance, insecurity, oppression, violence, and injustice. And so here you have Luther explaining that order protects the innocent yeah now when the cloak of order is used to uh, escape any sort of criticism for those who are enforcing the order then then there's a whole nother conversation to have but i think here it's good to kind of first establish this is the way it's supposed to work yeah we can talk about correction and um how realignment can happen when this gets out of balance but it's still good to just say, if things were working right in society, what way should it work? It should work this way, that the evil are punished so that the innocent uh, can continue to live in peace. Yeah, yeah. There's not chaos. Right. What, that's no. Or anarchy, or might makes right. There's law, there's predictability. Yes, yes. And, and one of the things that's really, uh, you know, and, you know, you, you think about the way... Uh, you know the the Western societies have been structured uh, since then. You know, as you know, we'll say with the French Revolution, and uh, you know how how that impacted the the structuring of of Europe, and and also you know where where there's this recognition that power can you know that that there has to be some balance when authority mm-hmm. becomes corrupt or authority goes off the rails mm-hmm. um I, and i don't know maybe that's some of the beauty of the american democratic system with the checks and balances and understanding that there is something beautiful in the people legislating uh laws uh through their representatives or, or even the par- it, parliamentary system i mean the parliamentary both, system bo- bo- but occasionally these... we need justices that say this is against the constitution yes yes so um, now, no. okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that never in all of this, I mean, we have, we have, we have some idea. First of all, Luther doesn't list the specific criticisms that were leveled against, were him. leveled against him. And so we, it's not a quid pro quo. They say this. So I say that. Yeah. Yeah. But we get, you know, as we go through this, we can sort of try and pick out a couple of things that that he's he do, he does say a little bit um here that does sort of tag a few of the a few of the the points that are being made against him and i i, I wonder how much of this is is still contemporary 
Right. You know, so um, one of the things Luther says is he addresses uh, the, the first one that Luther addresses is that he advocated for the murder of the peasants who surrendered. So this is the accusation that's brought against Luther is that um, within his writings is permission to kill peasants who surrendered. And what Luther answers is, all my words were directed toward the obdurate, hardened, and blinded peasants who would neither see nor hear as anyone may see who reads them. And yet you say that I advocate for the merciless slaughter of the poor captured peasants. So he's saying all my harsh words were against those who are not repenting and uh, surrendering. They're all against those who still have arms against us. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, reading through, I went back and read through against the murderous words, and I, I think you know he's he's right. Um, so uh, there's harsh language in his book that would really make it susceptible to be taken out of context. But in context, he is speaking against those uh, unwilling to surrender. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the um, uh, one other thing Luther's critics say is that the the peasants never killed anyone. And, and that is clearly not true. Yeah, this idea that the, the nobles are, are the evil force and the peasants are these innocent angels and the nobles brutally attack them and we just have these completely innocent angels falling on the ground, not so true. Yeah, for example, on Easter of 1525, there were a group of peasants who caught uh, the Count of Helfenstein and his soldiers outside their garrison. When the Count tried to bargain with the presidents, they stabbed him to death. Uh, the peasants then forced uh, 24 nobles and their servants to run a gauntlet of lances, and all of them were killed and left naked in the field. So Luther uh, would have been aware of these kind of circumstances, because Easter of 1525, he writes his book, Against Murderous Hordes, mid-May yeah. 1525. Yeah, so uh, this was a particularly uh, famous example of the peasants' bloodlust themselves i wonder if it, it could have been used in the the penny papers of say like in the 19th century in how the the pioneers on the prairie and how they would be attacked by american indians and then people would write uh things that the people in the east would read and they'd have this imagination of the american indians being this just uh savage attack and and how much of what the peasants are said to have done evil is something that then riles up inside the press of that time so that the nobles find themselves have more permission. Yeah, uh, and yeah. how much is it really happening? It's right. Maybe the, the propaganda, yeah. the fake news. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it was interesting that Luther never referenced the murders um, that were perpetrated by the peasants in any of his writings. So maybe it's just on deep background for his writings. Yeah, yeah. But so. he does claim that... Uh, he claims they didn't need to kill people because they threatened to kill anybody who got in their way. The third criticism of Luther is that the nobles were too harsh. So Luther says, what does that have to do with me? Uh, basically, he's saying he wrote a book against the abuses of the peasantry. Um, regarding the treatment of the princes, he says, when I have time and occasion to do so, I shall attack the princes and lords too. For in my office of teacher, a prince is the same to me as a peasant. I have already served them faithfully in ways that they have not made me very popular with them. And then Robert Kolb, uh, in his paper, spends some time outlining how Luther does attack the princes in his commentary on Psalm 84 and Psalm 101, written in the 1530s. So Luther made good on that promise. It took a while. It took a while, but he did do it. 
So after addressing these three major criticisms, Luther talks a little bit about life and wartime. So this idea that the peasants uh, died in war and the nobles should have stopped themselves. Uh, Here Luther is kind of speaking to the fog of war. And he says, isn't this what it is like in wartime when the innocent must suffer with the guilty? Indeed, it seems that the innocent suffer most, for it is they who become the widows and the orphans. These are, the pla- these are plagues that God sends, and they are always well-deserved. And we must suffer them together if we want to live together at other times. So here he speaks about the character of community, that we rejoice together and we suffer together. And so he says, if you want to live in a community, you must share the community's burdens dangers and injuries even though not you but your neighbor has caused them you must do this in the same way that you enjoy the peace profit protection wealth freedom and security of the community even though you have not won them or brought them into being i like this description of community because it speaks to how when we uh, share the burdens with one another uh, we can't just speak to injustice as kind of a Uh, a drive-through commentary. It's best to speak of the suffering and the struggles that exist in community when we ourselves are part of that community. Yeah, it's one of those things that, at least here in in North America, I think we could certainly do better. Um, When when our neighbors are suffering, uh, too often we just step away, you know, and let them suffer. Not my problem. Not my problem. Yeah, we not let them, in my backyard. Yeah, we, we let them suffer alone, and that's this is uh, this is certainly a, uh, an opportunity for improved improved community. I, I can see. So his final defense against the Catholic accusation that he has encouraged rebellion. He says, finally, it may be said, you t- you yourself teach rebellion, for you say that everyone who can should hew and stab among the rebels, and that in this case everyone is both supreme judge and executioner. I reply. My little book was not written against ordinary evildoers, but against rebels. So again, we're reminding ourselves of the distinction that Luther makes between a criminal and a rebel. A murderer or evildoer lets the head of government alone and attacks only the members of their property, Luther says. Indeed, he fears the ruler. But a rebel attacks the head himself and interferes with the exercise of his sword and his office. And therefore, his crime is not to be compared with that of a murderer. So, uh, uh, you know, that, that aligns with the view that Luther is most adamantly against rebellion, which I think uh, Evan has made several, several times, uh, even more than criminal behavior, which I, I was sort of surprised, you know, that he, he makes that distinction. Um, I think it's partly that he sees criminal behavior, something that neighbor to neighbor that could be sorted out while rebellion requires the intervention of the state. So, in one final point in the course of his defense, Luther has a prophecy that reflects what happened during the French Revolution. Not quite like Nostradamus, but more him just showing that if you connect the dots, this is where this is going to lead. Yeah, and he goes, My advice is to stop complaining and murmuring and thank God that by his grace and mercy we have not experienced the greater misfortune which the devil intended to bring upon us through the peasants. You would have really seen. You you would really have seen something if this devil's business of the peasants had gone on, and if God had not answered the prayers of godly Christians and restrained them with the sword. Throughout all Germany, people would have suffered exactly what those suffer, who are not now being killed and destroyed. Only it would have been much worse. No one would have been safe from another. Any man might have been might have killed another, burned down his house and barn, and abused his wife and children. 
So when we started this discussion on the peasants' revolt and Luther's harsh commentary on it, we said that this wasn't Luther's best moment. It may not have been his best moment, but it wasn't the worst moment either that is often ascribed to him. Yeah, after going through all the source documents and the scholarship, um, I would say it's probably more accurate to say that this is a good example of, of the messiness of the gospel in a sinful world is, you know, Luther was dealing with some very unusual situations there. Didn't handle it perfectly. I, I, but, but it was, you know, I, he brought up some very good points, you know, I, in, in this, in this commentary, at least I, 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 I thought. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think finally we are done with the peasants revolt of 1524, 1525. Um, so thanks to Josh Yagley who helps uh, uh, make us sound better than we are. <laughs> yeah. Also, we got uh, uh, thanks to uh, our source materials. Uh, we got Scott Hendricks, uh, Martin Luther, the Man in His Vision, Luther's for, Works forty six, uh, Robert Cold, Luther on Peasants and Princes, founded Lutheran Quarterly two thousand nine, and uh, Mac, I, I got some of the demographic information from uh, uh, Max Planck Institute on demographics and research. So the, that eight million number and, and mm-hmm. all that stuff so also so you can wikipedia is always helpful yeah and you can contact us at grace on tap uh period podcast at gmail.com or you can catch us at grace on tap dash podcast.com or we can also be found on facebook uh, appreciate if you post any any reviews on itunes we'd love to to hear what you have it also helps get the word out next time we're going to be getting into uh pope adrian and the election of Pope Adrian, which happened back in 1521. So we're gonna we're in 1525 now. We're gonna go back in time to 15 early 1522, I should say, and kind of look at now the same course of history, but not the Peasants' Revolt again, but through uh, the course of uh, the Catholic Pope history. Yeah, it's, hope you find that. I think that's gonna be really really interesting. So, cheers, cheers. cheers.